Hey everyone, today on the podcast, I am talking with Steven Sashin, the father of Zero Shoes. I personally think this is one of the most fun interviews I've had in quite a long time. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Steven and I talk about foot health, uh, the shoe companies. We talk about really important things like chocolate and peanut butter. It was just super fun. Uh, he is so rich with knowledge and information. I, I, I do think not only will you enjoy this conversation and will you be entertained, but you're going to learn something. Anyway, pull up a chair and buckle up. This is the Original Strength Podcast. All right. So, Stephen Sashin, you are the father of zero shoes <laughs> yeah i guess so and my wife lena who is my co-founder is the mother um that is a really disturbing way of thinking about it it well but it, it's appropriate to me um so well, we everybody have, we don't have children so yes this is our baby that is your baby yeah i totally get that um so everybody has a, a an origin story um what got you started like what What's your story? How did you get so passionate about feet and footwear? And <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, that sounds really wrong. Um, so <laughs> I let me let me clarify that. Um, what happened for me is 15-ish years ago, I was when I was 45, I got back into sprinting and I was getting injured pretty much constantly for about the next two years. And a friend of mine who's a world champion runner, which I'm, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, to say world champion runner, you may as well just say my neighbor because they're everywhere. In fact, I just realized out of all the people that I train with on a regular basis, I'm the only one without a world championship title. Wow. So uh, happily they're uh, in events that I don't compete in, but nonetheless, you know, um, and there are a couple of things that I can do that they can't do. So I feel good about that. But um, but regardless, he handed me a copy of the book Born to Run from Chris McDougall and simultaneously said, you know, you should try running barefoot and see if you learn anything from that. And I took a barefoot run and I was now I'm a sprinter. OK, so you're I, a real runner. Yeah. Well, um, people don't think of me as a runner um, when I'm on the track with like Olympians who are distance runners and middle distance runners. They they had no idea what I was doing on the track until one day they were doing uh, repeat 200s. And as they're doing their 200s, I was doing something similar and I was like flying by them. And they finally went, oh, now we get it. <laughs> so um, people don't understand sprinters. There aren't that many of us. Anyway, uh, I had been getting injured all this time. My friend suggested running barefoot, reading Born to Run. And that first barefoot run, I was so transfixed by the experience that I mean, like literally, you know, what if I run faster, run slower, run the same speed, but move my legs faster or slower, um, land on this part of my foot or that part of my foot or just, you know, whatever I could think of. And we were running on grass and trails and rocks and streets and sidewalks and wooden bridges. I mean, everything. And at the end of this run, somebody had a GPS watch on and I said, oh my God, how far was that? She goes, that's a little over 5K. I'm like, I'm sorry, What? Because I had never run more than a mile in my life, and I hated every moment of that. But this I loved. And so I wanted that barefoot-like experience as much as I could have it. I made a pair of sandals for myself based on this 10,000-year-old design idea. You know, I got some rubber from a shoe repair place, some cord from Home Depot, and then um, made a pair of sandals. And people asked me for some of those as well. And by just letting my feet do what's natural, by getting out of traditional running shoes, my injuries went away. I became faster. I became a master's all-American sprinter. I've been so I've had an all-American time 
for wow for 15 years so i set one just a month or two ago for men over 60 so i'm like the 15th fastest guy in the country or something and but back then 15 years ago uh, or 13 years ago i was just so amazed by what this did and someone said to me if you had a website for this weird sandal making hobby that you've suddenly picked up i could put you in a book that i'm writing so I rush home, I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife, and she tells me I'm a complete idiot, and it's a bad idea, and it's a distraction, just like many of the myriad distractions that I've had over my life. And uh, she said, do not build a website. I said, okay, okay, I won't. And then she went to bed and I built a website. So, because, you know, that's what husbands do. Right and, and it just took off. So on the one hand, it was just my own personal experience was so profound and people were asking about it. So I thought, all right, I'll put up a website. It'll be a car payment. But in the next Jesus, not even that long, a few months when we started hearing people saying, wow, these sandals have changed my life. And we're selling a do-it-yourself sandal making kit at that time. We're taking big sheets of rubber, cutting them into small sheets of rubber, taking big things of cord from Home Depot, cutting them into smaller things of cord and giving instructions on how to make these sandals. Um, the more I got into it, two things became clear, maybe three. The first is that letting your body do what's natural is almost always better than getting in the way. You know, stronger is better than weaker. Letting your joints and bones move is better than immobilizing them. Letting your nerves feel things is better than becoming numb. These are all obvious things to people. The other thing, uh, and, and doing that allows your body to have the opportunity to mm, work better. Let's just say it that way. Comfort, performance, and health. Three big things we make a difference on. By the way, I'll stop ranting about this after this next thought, I think. But the second thing that became clear is the big shoe companies know that what they're doing does not help people. In fact, they know it harms people. We had people who ran multi-billion dollar footwear brands tell a friend of ours directly uh, yeah, what Zero Shoes is doing is legit. We can't do it because it would be admitting we've been lying for 50 years. Nike has a study on their own that they they paid for and designed. They have it on their website. It's comparing two of their shoes, their best-selling running shoe and a new shoe they developed. And the way they publicize the results, and this is the important part, is the spin that they gave the results was that the new shoe reduced injuries by 52%, which it did. In the 12-week study, though, if you look at the numbers, the best-selling shoe injured over 30% of the people wearing it. The new shoe only injured about 15%. They know that their shoes cause problems. The other thing is the shoe companies know they're misusing physics to mislead people. Um, for example, there are people who will say something like, you know, these shoes are the whole lot of cushioning that have a carbon fiber plate, that the carbon fiber acts like a spring or it acts like a lever and it's improving performance. But the shoe companies have been very quiet because they know that's not why it's in there and it doesn't do those things. It's in there because when you have that much foam stacked up, the foam becomes unstable. So they have to split it up with something to add more stability. But they know that that's not actually causing anything, which is why they've been silent. And they, and so, I mean, again, in short, what animates me in a big way is that I find it really unacceptable to make a living lying to people. And, you know, I have a, it's not a joke joke, but the problem with running shoes is that they don't kill people. If they did, if running shoes did what cigarettes did, there'd be a congressional hearing and these companies would all be out of business because they know that 
their shoes cause problems. There's research showing this. Now, I know some people listening to this are going to you know, think that I'm pulling it out of my butt, but the research could not be clearer. But more importantly, the, the simple data, that, like I mentioned before, that running injury rates have not decreased in the last 50 years, despite all the, quote, advances in technology. I mean, that says it all. Or another thing, if running shoe companies are so smart and so good, why is there a multi-multi-billion dollar aftermarket for orthotics and insoles and various things to improve those shoes? The shoe companies know what those things are. They could build those right into the shoe if they worked, but those don't actually work either for all but about 10% of the people. And so, and orthotics and support was never invented to be something that you wear all day, every day. It was invented to immobilize your foot temporarily while you were injured. And what you would do is while you're not getting physical therapy, you would wear this stuff to let your tissues uh, heal and let your body relax while you rebuild up strength and flexibility. But once doctors and chiropractors and podiatrists and various other people realized they could make money by selling aftermarket products to improve the problematic shoes that they just sold you, yeah, then it was a done deal. Now everyone's doing this. But again, the research could not be clear. Now, for anyone listening who's one of those few people for whom it's made a difference, congratulations. And I would still suggest that immobilizing your foot is not a great long-term solution. It could lead to balance issues that maybe aren't affecting you now, but might you know make you one of the statistics like my father who tripped, fell down, broke his hip, and was dead a couple of weeks later. So, uh, and I know that sounds hyperbolic to anyone who's in their 30s, 40s, even 50s or 60s, but this is what happens. I mean, think about it. You put your arm in a cast, it does not come out stronger eight weeks later. And again, there's research. Katrina Protopapas and others showed that putting arch support in the shoes of healthy individuals reduced their muscle mass and strength in their feet by up to 17% in just 12 weeks. How can mm. getting weaker be better than being stronger? So, and again, this is the end of my rant about this. All these shoe companies know this stuff and they're not doing anything about it because they can't, because it would be admitting, like I said, they've been lying for the last 50 years. So that was a long answer for what got me started. And what, but what has kept us going in the last 13 years is hearing literally every day from people who say, getting out of those big, thick shoes and into your shoes have changed my life, either because they found something comfortable for the first time or that they um, are, are doing things they never thought they could do before or doing things they haven't done in years because they were having issues that were preventing them from doing so. Uh, and you know, that's between that and wanting to pull the rug out from underneath uh, the problems that modern, what I call big shoe, AKA big BS has been causing for 50 years. You know, those are the two things that keep us going every day. So was that, was that way more than you were hoping for? No, that was, that was <laughs> actually very amazing and awesome. I'm very, very happy you went that route. I've, and, and I've often wondered like, because I also read born to run and I can't, I don't remember. It, it had to be probably 15 years ago or more. Well, it came out, it came, I mean, it got popular in 2009. Okay. So. That's exactly when I'm sure that's when I ran it, uh, read it. Um, and I've always wondered like why other shoe companies didn't take that information and, and start making better shoes. Oh, um, again, they, there are a couple who did, and then they pulled out of it because they were having a hard time telling the story of here's all our big padded motion control stuff. And here's all the stuff that's the exact opposite. And people would go, well, which do I buy? And they didn't have a good answer for that. And some companies did did something even worse. 
they made shoes that they called barefoot or called minimalist that were nothing of the sort. And Dr. Irene Davis, uh, when she was at Harvard, her research showed that those things that she called partial minimalist shoes, they kind of went a little bit of the way, but not all the way, are the worst for you because they had just enough cushioning, for example, to make it so you couldn't get the feedback that you need from the ground that would lead you to naturally alter your gait to something more efficient and appropriate. And so uh, that was problematic. And some of the partial minimal shoes still had some of the problems of regular shoes, like a pointy toe box that squeezes your toes together or arch support that you don't really need. Or one company, um, they kept calling me and saying, uh, Merrill, they kept calling and saying, hey, we have a new shoe. Do you want to try it? And I went, I can't fit into your shoes. They said, well, do you want to try it? I went, no, like the instep is too narrow. I can't get it on my foot. And they said, well, do you want to try it? I said, if you send it to me, I'm just going to sell it on eBay. They went, well, do you want them? I went, well, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> so, wow. So I, I made about $1,000, you know, just reselling their stuff on eBay. I will admit, I felt a little guilty doing it, not because they sent me free shoes that I resold, but because why am I selling shoes that I think are bad to people who don't know any better? Luckily, it was only, you know, five or six pairs. But um, I, I wasn't, it did present a bit of a moral quandary at that time. So you, you've always been pretty, I'm going to say vocal <laughs> about, you know, more passionate. That. Is that the, that yeah, funny? no, no, you're very, you're very passionate about your shoes and, and zero, zero shoes, your baby, your child, which I, no, no, totally no, 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 no. I'm very, very passionate about the truth. Right. And okay. It so happens that what we're if I if I could rewind uh, the tape and do it again, the only thing I would change is I would have seen if we could have called the company Truth Footwear. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, based off of that, and based off of why you said the other shoe companies won't change their shoes now, um, do 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 you ever get attacked by the other shoe companies? Oh yeah. Um, well, there are a couple of things that happen. One is that. Uh, we had a major company. We had an order with a very big retailer and they were going to place the order. They said, they called us in the morning. They said, we're going to click submit by the end of the day. The end of the day came and went and they had not clicked submit. And we found out through the grapevine that a multi-billion dollar brand had coincidentally called them on that day and said, we don't want zero shoes in your store. And they canned the order. And it was because we had been in a small iconic shoe store here in Boulder that that company used to kind of track what was going on, anything new in the market, you know, how are they doing in relation to the competition? And we were out selling them and they went, whoa. And we were a tiny company at that time. So the fact that this big company was anxious about us uh, was very interesting. Um, that company, yeah, same company, now that I think of it, they stole some of my trademarks. And uh, we sent them a cease and desist, cease and desist letter and the biggest business mistake I ever made was not knowing when the right time is to send a cease and desist letter to someone who is knowingly violating the law. Uh, we did it too soon. They were able to pull out and not suffer any consequences, really. Um, in fact, they whined to me. They said, uh, it cost us $7 million to reprint everything. I said, well, you could have owned that trademark and my whole company for $5 million, so I don't give a shit. But, <laughs> but if I had only waited for like two weeks before I sent the cease and desist letter, there would have been no way for them to reprint things and remake everything. And the lawsuit would have been about a half a billion dollar lawsuit. So there's that component. But the biggest one is, um, and this is supposedly flattering, I have watched over the years, these big companies 
take ideas from our products and integrate them into theirs. And only just recently, a company completely ripped off one of our best-selling products. I mean, like they look almost identical. They, um, we saw it on Amazon the other day. It's a quarter of the price of ours and it's basically identical. And even in their advertising, they don't mention us by name, but they go compare it to the one that looks like this. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, it's, wow. and I'll tell you the thing that I find more unpleasant than that, because that's almost expected in this industry. But a number of people who have been mm, top commenters on the barefoot minimalist natural movement thing in the last few years have done videos reviewing their shoes. And it's like, really, guys, you're going to promote something that is clearly stolen from one of the other companies. That's that's really that's not cool. I like how you said it was supposedly uh, flattering because <laughs> well, it, it, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> um, it's it's really annoying. Yeah. And there's nothing we can do. And this is what the footwear industry is. The footwear industry is just a bunch of copycats who will rip off other people's ideas. And then what's happening now though is, uh, and it's, I'm not trying to, how do I wanna say this without going down a global economic rabbit hole. Um, in Asia, the idea that uh, copy, copying something is a form of respect. It's like, you made something that's really good for people. Now we're going to make more of it and make it more available so more people can have this experience. That's a legitimate worldview that copying something is a sign of respect um, because there isn't the same worldview that whoever was in, whoever invented the thing is supposed to then become a, a billionaire. It's like, you did a thing. It's good for the community. Great. We're going to help. And again, totally legitimate way of seeing the world. Not a great way of seeing the world when there's other people who have a very different worldview where that gets in the way. And those things are mutually incompatible. So um, don't know how it's all going to pan out, but I can't say I'm surprised. I'm actually just surprised it happened now and not you know one or two years from now when we're two or three times the size we are now. Right. And okay, so speaking of that, man, and I know you got to feel good about it, but zeros. You, you've really grown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's no longer just do-it-yourself kits. No, no. We have a complete line of casual and performance shoes, boots, and sandals that people use for pretty much every activity. No, it's uh, it's wild. I mean, Lena and I and Dennis, our product developer, who's been with us for 11 years, um, every now and then we just sort of shake our heads going, how the hell did this happen? But um, uh, we are we're we're helping a lot of people no doubt um and uh just just thinking that it was from a whim of making a website to be in a guy's book to yeah, to where you are now com complete crazy unreproducible fluke lucky insane who knows how i mean i'll tell you this is sound funny going back to the very beginning of, of when we talked here um were it not for the unbelievably lucky phenomenon that I was having brunch with some friends and one of them brought Lena to brunch and we ended up, uh, well, she avoided me like the plague for four years. Then we were friends for a couple of years. Then we, for like four more years. And then um, we became a couple and uh, I asked her to marry me like literally the moment she kissed me for the first time. And it were it not for 
the two of us, uh, this wouldn't have happened because she's a brilliant operations finance person who's always thinking of what could go wrong. And I'm a product marketing person who's always focused on the things that are really cool that could go right. And we respect each other's differences in that way, knowing that, that I mean, well, the real thing is I know that she's right. And she knows that I can build a car. She's just got to make sure there's enough money for gas. So you two are the dynamic duo of peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> I love the use of peanut butter and chocolate uh, rather than peanut butter and jelly. I, I can't stand jelly and peanut butter, but chocolate what? and peanut butter. Wait, wait, what? Are you ill? Do you have a genetic disorder? I, I, if I'm going to put anything with peanut butter, I'd rather be chocolate than jelly. What kind of chocolate? <laughs> Say what? What kind of chocolate? Oh, I like dark, dark chocolate. Like, well, I don't there, want sweet chocolate. Is there any other kind? I mean, that's true. Yeah, that's true. We, we are, we are massive chocolate snobs. So I will introduce you to our uh, where we get our stash. I would love to know where you get your stash. I'll tell you now. Kind of like. yeah. I'll tell you now. It's a company called Bar and Cocoa, C-O-C-O-A, or cacao, however you spell it. Bar and Cocoa, Bar and Cacao. Anyway, you'll find it. It's a mail order company in Denver. They only do like single bean artisanal chocolate from around the world. Every bar is expensive, uh, but they last a long time because you can only eat a little bit at a time. They're overwhelming. So we've had... We'll open up a bar of chocolate. It'll last for, between the two of us, well over a week, often like two weeks, because we only take just a little bit. Uh, and what we've done is we've ordered, <laughs> we'll order like 20 bars and then just keep very meticulous notes about which ones we liked and which ones we didn't like. And so that we can keep expanding our stash. We've got like 50 bars of chocolate in our pantry. It's crazy. Well, I will thank you now for changing my life forever uh, and probably for the second time. So thank you um, again. Well, A, you're welcome. B, you might you you might not thank me once you start spending this much money on chocolate. But no, one, my wife won't thank you. <laughs> there we go. One thing they have though that I will recommend, they have a vegan uh dark chocolate gelato. And basically it comes in like one of those those containers, like um, I don't know what you call them, those kind of paper containers for milk or juice or whatever. Um, and you just either throw it in an ice cream maker or throw, or, or put it in a, uh, ice cube tray and freeze it and then put it in a Vitamix or something. And then it turns into gelato in seconds. So rich that whenever we bring this to parties, most people can't handle more than about two spoonfuls. Wow. It's amazing. I'm going to take the two spoonful challenge. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. <laughs> I want to see it on video. I can do that too. And I'll send it straight to you. So I want to ask you, because sprinting, I, to me, there's no greater feeling in the world. That is like as close as you can get to being like feeling like a bird. Um, like it's just this, it's the suit, the ultimate expression in speed, power, fluidity, everything that we're made to do. Um, but it's quite different on the foot versus like running to me, as, as far as the power you're producing. It shouldn't be biomechanically different. Right. Uh, because if you're running with proper form, it's very, very similar no matter what speed you're running. It should be. But you're right. The amount of power you're putting out into the, and, and force into the ground, that's the difference. And the different, the, what makes uh, one sprinter better than the other is a number of things, but but what's referred to as mass specific force. If you and I both weigh the same amount of money, same amount of money, if you and I both weigh the same amount, and uh, I guess we weigh the same amount of money, you know, like we're, we're owes, a couple thousand quarters. Um, so if we weighed the same and had the same form, 
whoever was able to get more force in the ground would be faster. It's just a Newton's law, equal and opposite uh, reaction. So no one really knows how to apply more force into the ground, uh, but they all know that that's the solution. And, and the way you apply more force into the ground is mostly by having your, having a, being a really taut spring so that when your foot is contacting the ground, it's already in a strong position, which makes everything upstream from that in a strong position so that you get off the ground faster. And what that has to do with force is that if you are applying the same amount of force into the ground faster, well, if you, force equals mass times acceleration, if you're the same mass um, and you always are the same mass, acceleration is always just gravity. The only thing you can do is affect the time component. And so the faster you're off the ground, the more force happens in that small amount of time than if you're spreading it out over time. This goes back to the thing about foam that I mentioned before. We don't know what makes people faster, but we do know what makes them slower. Spreading that force out over a bigger surface area or having that force um, absorb, more, absorb energy. And foam does both of those things. It spreads it out so you don't feel it in your feet, but the force is still going into your body, but then it's not going in very quickly. It's being attenuated a little bit uh, in such a way that you're not applying enough force in the ground to run as well as you could. That you took that exactly better than I even hoped. So that was awesome. So wearing regular running shoes yeah. could slow you down. Well, the Washington Post finally did an article about this. Not that I was waiting for them to do it, but a couple of weeks ago, I'll have to find a link, uh, basically talking about all these maximalist shoes. And it said something I've been saying since they came out nine or 10 years ago, because it's just physics. And I've been teaching physics since I was 14. I had a knack for it. And um, what they, well, the way I said it is all foam is tuned to a particular weight and a particular speed. If you're not that weight running at that speed, it's getting in the way more than it does even if you do run that weight and speed. It's optimal for that weight and speed, but it's still sucking energy out of your system. But if you're not that weight, not that speed, it's really getting in the way. And the Post just did an article about this and showing research coming out or research that came out showing that that's the case. It ain't rocket science. It's, it's very simple. Here, I'll give you the one that's the opposite of that that annoys the crap out of me. Um, Adidas, or if you want to be pretentious and accurate, call it Adidas. Because <laughs> it was Adi Dostler. He's the guy who started it. Um, so you can either impress or annoy your friends by saying Adidas, up to you. They, they did a demo for their boost foam a number of years ago. They took what looks like about a two-pound steel ball, and first they bounce it on some concrete, and it barely bounces. Uh, then they bounce it off, quote, the other company's foam, and it bounces a couple of times. First of all, no other company has ever used that foam, or at least not in 40 years. Then they bounce it off their boost foam, and the first bounce, the ball bounces about 30% up from where they dropped it, and it bounces like 10 more times. Well, if you go to the Exploratorium Museum in San Francisco, you can do an experiment like that. They have a uh, metal plate with a concrete base underneath it. And then above it, I don't know, about a foot, they have a plexiglass plate with a hole in it. And you can drop a metal ball through that hole. And the first bounce hits the plexiglass plate. And then it bounces 260 more times. So Adi is trying to show, look how great our foam is. It still sucks compared to things that really have the most uh, elastic recoil possible. And elastic is not about stretching. Elastic is just going back into the shape that you started with after you've been deformed. 
And so a steel, and I think the only thing that would be better than steel ball on a steel plate with a concrete or cement base would be like diamond ball, diamond plate. Because those, the structure, that lattice structure of a diamond is hyper elastic because it barely deforms at all. Dude, you, this is like Bill Nye, uh, watching Bill Nye science guy right now. <laughs> Except with better hair. Come on. You do. Absolutely. Um, so as a, as a sprinter. Yes. Okay. And we're talking about, talking about natural form of the feet. Yeah. What's, what's a better surface to sprint on? Like, would you prefer grass, sand, concrete, rubber track? Like hardest thing you can get away with. So again, it's just, uh, it's just a Newton's law thing. If you're putting force into the ground, the force is coming back into your body and you, the way you become a taut spring is by having having, I don't want to use the word stiff, although that's technically the term is like stiff tendons and ligaments, basically that they're, they're either uh, not like, you know, preventing you from moving, but when they're engaged, they're just strong and they don't move a whole lot. Uh, so that's, that's part one. So you want, there's a, I wish I remember the name of the guy who wrote a book analyzing how pe why people have gotten better in sports over the years. And his basic conclusion is it's, mostly because there's just more people doing these things. So you're able to select from a larger population and find those outliers who are just much better. And there's also been a shift in identifying the kinds of people who are better at certain sports just because of their physiology. So if you look at the at pictures of the people who are in the Olympics in say the 30s and 40s, uh, they were all like, you know, five foot, 10 inch guys who weigh about 175 pounds. They all look basically the same. Now you look at Olympic athletes and you compare Simone Biles at you know four foot ten to any basketball player at seven foot plus, and or any swimmer who's in between who's got shoulders as wide as Mount Everest. You know they're like completely different bodies mm -hmm. that you don't develop those bodies to become that good of an athlete. You're that good of an athlete in part because you have that body. So and then there's other genetic components. I mean. I'm, I, I did, uh, I went to the gym the other day and I did a standing backflip. I haven't done one in about five years. I saw that by the way, and I wanted to ask you about it, but go ahead. All right. Well, all right. Well, I hadn't done one in a while. And so I was just kind of curious. In fact, the, the, the last one I did prior to this one was the first time ever that I didn't make it all the way to my feet. And I landed on my hands and knees because I forgot that I'd had abdominal surgery a week before. <laughs> <laughs> and so, do it. yeah, I just didn't make it around very well. Um, but, uh, you know, a big chunk of that is just genetics. I mean, my, my grandfather was a gymnast. I didn't know that till I was in my forties, but, and I've done 10,000 or probably 20,000 backflips in my life, but I I've asked athletes at the world masters track and field championship who are 85 years and older. I've asked them, is it nature or nurture? And they all have the exact same answer. They say, it's genetics that I'm here. It's training that I beat that guy today. And, and so that's the distinction. What was the point? Wait, why are we saying this? Uh, so oh, sprinting. Because I love sprinting and I was, I was picking your brain about sprinting. Okay. Yeah. So, so again, the, um, we're talking about, oh, this was actually forcing the ground, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. Athletes and I don't know. Sprinting, I, you know, look, as a former All-American gymnast, I can tell you that while Sprinting is super fun. In fact, I use less energy when I'm sprinting at full speed than when, when I'm sprinting at, say, 70 or 80% of my full speed. It's harder to run slow than it is to run as fast as I can. But if you're looking for maximum feeling like you're flying and all the rest, 
it's gymnastics on a on a modern spring floor or one of those inflated tumbling strips where it's basically just a 50 meter trampoline um that's boy it's fun that that does look fun i've seen i've seen people play on those um yeah and that does look fun but i don't have access to those i do have access to the street outside of my house though oh oh, oh. Uh, so, well here's where we're going so now we asked about surface yeah so, so again you want the hardest surface you can get away with and what's really interesting is uh the guy who did that book this is where it went the guy who did that book analyzing sports performance over time his conclusion is that for sprinters is that the primary difference is actually just track surface that's made people faster his analysis showed that jesse owens would be almost as fast as usain bolt if he was on a modern track surface what i don't think he knows about delano merriweather who set the world record still has the world record from 1971 in the 100 yard dash and he has the world record still because right after that race they switched to meters and they haven't run the 100 yards competitively ever uh -huh. since but he like jesse owens was running on a cinder track with big spikes and delano he ran a nine flat 100 yards which translates to about a nine eight hundred meters which would make him if not the fastest guy this year one of and he wasn't even a trained sprinter. He just liked to go out and sprint. He was in medical school and he burned off steam, which he had a lot of because he was the first black student at Duke University Medical School and the only black student during his entire four years there. And so he'd go out to the track and one day he entered a race and like set an American record and off, off he went. That's awesome. I think that guy's name is uh, Epstein. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And he's also got a YouTube video. Bigger, yeah. faster, stronger is the YouTube video. Well, bigger, well, bigger, faster, stronger is also the name of a documentary about steroid use. It's really fascinating. Ah, um, interesting. Maybe it's bigger, stronger, faster, or bigger. I don't know which way it is. Maybe it's one of those things. But it's Epstein, I think, is the guy that wrote the book. We'll look it up. Yeah, that's that's fascinating stuff. So, for oh, you, the oh, the book is called "The Sports Gene." The Sports Gene. All right, we'll put that in the notes of the show. Yeah. So you before before you found the world of barefoot shoes, um, and you were running in your regular running shoes, and you were getting injured. What type of what can you like for the listener? What type of injuries were you getting? Um, you name it, anything from my navel down, um, hamstring pulls, calf pulls. Uh, those were the biggies mostly. And the reason why I was getting them is that I have a, a bit of a compromised spine to begin with. So for people who are medically oriented, I'll say it just, and then I'll describe it. I have a now a grade two, then a grade one, L5, uh, L5, S1 spondylolisthesis with a pars defect. In other words, my sacrum and the first vertebrae above that are not aligned properly. The vertebrae is shifted forward and I have basically no disc between that and my sacrum. And so my sciatic is constantly under stress. And on the one hand, I could feel like the message to contract those muscles at the right time was not getting there at the right time. But the reason, but the thing that exacerbated that was before I got out of my regular shoes, I had a form problem that I couldn't feel in regular shoes. It became instantly obvious in bare feet because running with bad form feels bad, running with good form feels great. But I was immune to that. I was numb to that in regular shoes. So I was overstriding. My feet were landing in front of my body. So I'm putting the brakes on and then pulling the ground underneath me. And your glutes and hamstrings aren't designed for 
pulling as much as they're designed for extension. So that, you know, getting your leg behind you and you're most vulnerable, especially your hamstring when your foot is way out in front of you. And my calf, I'm reaching out in front of me and then I'm pointing my toes to land on my toes as a sprinter should. And that puts excessive eccentric strain. So that's when you're lowering like in a bicep curl. Same thing if you're doing a calf raise when you're lowering, that's the eccentric component. And the extra strain when you're doing an eccentric load and you're not getting a nervous signal there at the right time, uh, that was leading to a whole bunch of things. And after I had torn a hamstring at a track meet and I was seeing a physical therapist here in town as a former world champion marathoner. And after the third session, he said, if what I'm doing didn't help you, you need to go see a real doctor. And the real doctor took an x-ray of my spine and said, um, so what did you do to break your back 30 years ago? Oh, I said, uh, well, I was an all-American gymnast. He goes, that's all I need to know. <laughs> um, and then there's a debate about how much of this came from gymnastics. I can think of three injuries where I affected my back, um, but there's also a debate that it could have been congenital, might've been born with that. So I know you just alluded to genetics, nature and genetics being a great part of things, um, but you are still, you're 60-ish. Um, you're one of the fastest men in the country. Yeah, but there's and other guys who are 60-ish who are fast. I understand. My friend, my friend Alan Tissenbaum, who's a couple of years older than me, blows me out of the water. I mean, you know, um, oh, I just blanked. I'm, I'm really horrible with names all of a sudden. Um, Willie Galt, former professional football player. You know, he, at the at, at a world championship, uh, Masters World Championship a couple of years ago, he beat all the 35-year-olds and he was in his, he was 60, I think. That's freaking awesome. Crazy. But also I saw, again, we talked about the backflip that was on, on, I think it was Instagram or somewhere where I saw it and it looked like you were, I put it everywhere. (laughs) And I saw it, it worked, Um, (laughs) but it looked like you, like you might as well be 20. Um, So I guess my question is, is even though genetics may play a part and absolutely does, what is, what is your fitness regimen, sir? Um, boy, I'll tell you, if you want to not have a fitness regimen, start a fitness related company. Um, I don't much have, well, uh, that's a tricky question. Um, when I, well, yeah, but it's more complicated than that. So like the last two, two and a half, uh, wait, I'm looking the last three months I've had none because I had some eye surgery and I wasn't allowed to do anything for a couple months. So I just, and uh, we've had an unusually cold winter in Colorado, so I haven't been able to get onto the track. And it's only literally within the last week that I've been given the okay to get back and and use my gym. So when I'm healthy, uh, I'll be on the track once or twice a week. I've only got one serious, serious speed day in me right now, but I'm working on a different protocol, a different training plan where I should be able to get two in and then maybe a third really lighter day that's still. So the thing about sprinting is you don't get faster by doing anything other than running faster, essentially. So if I'm going to go all out, I've really got one, one and a half days a week in me. So that's actually what I'm trying to rearrange is like have three training sessions every two weeks with strength training stuff in between, plyometric stuff in between, but, uh, but not super hard track workout more than one and a half times a week. And because I've learned that that's all I can recover from. Uh, and the other thing that I've learned is when I'm on the track, if I have the thought, hey, let me do one more, that's the time to go home. <laughs> you you told me that about three or four years ago, and that yeah. was probably the best advice 
anyone has ever given me. <laughs> yeah, that was a hard one to learn. Um, but once you learn it, you you earn it. <laughs> well, you know what? That I think is one of the two or three reasons why in the last 13 years, I basically have been uninjured. I you know, maybe had a minor little tweak that put me out for a day or two, but that's it. Not like when I was running in regular shoes and I'd be out for weeks at a time and then come back and have a week till I got injured again. I, I for all practical purposes, have not had a real injury in 13 years. That's freaking awesome. Uh, just a couple more questions for you. Okay. What does it mean to live life feet first? Feet are your foundation. It's the bottom line. And if you don't take care of your foundation, it's the same thing of having a house with a bad foundation. So that's part of it. And anything you're going to do out in the world, you're going to start by doing something that you have, where you have to move. And most of the time you're going to be moving feet first. And it's also just a play on that whole idea of, you know, jumping into life. That's when you jump into something, you jump feet first, which is not true. You'll sometimes dive, but you get the idea. So, but that's the, the, the metaphor that, the, that we use is going into something, you know, jumping in feet first. It's about being committed. And, um, and when I walk around barefoot in the winter, people think I should be committed, but that's a completely different kind of story. <laughs> so it's, um, but the other part of it is that it should be fun is there's an aspect to that phrase where if you're not having fun, I like to say, do something different till you are, because if you're not enjoying it, you're not going to keep it up. If it's yet another thing to beat yourself up with, life is way too short for that. That's awesome. Um, of all the wonderful children you've given life to, <laughs> which one's your favorite? Is this my Sophie's Choice moment? Yeah, uh, sure. I, I, I want to do a, a sketch that would be like a Saturday Night Live sketch where someone is saying, um, well, uh, Sophie, you have uh, two choices. Um, we can kill both of your children or you can decide one that we will kill. Okay, that one. Sorry, what? Uh, that one. <laughs> wait, wait, don't, wait. It's okay, no big deal. So, <laughs> but anyway, um, I... A really tricky question. I, I'm going to have to, you know, here's what happens in the summer in particular when I'm wearing sandals more often than not. I'll put on our Z Trail sandal, which has a little bit of foam in it, a little more protective, and it's just a great smooth ride. And then I'll put on our Z Trek sandal or our Genesis sandal, which are just like five millimeters of rubber, and that's it. And it's like, oh my God, I can feel things again. That's so awesome. And then when I go and put the Z Trek back, sorry, the Z Trail back on with a little extra cushioning, it's like, oh, I got to rest now. This is so delightful that I can rest. Now I'm still getting natural movement and feedback from the ground, but that little tiny, tiny extra bit of cushioning is sometimes really wonderful. So similarly, when it comes to shoes, I designed the Speed Force shoe with a guy who used to work at Nike for 30 years and tried to get them to make shoes that were good for human feet. And he said that they never would do anything even close to what I told them to do. So he and I designed that shoe. It's what I train in. It's what I race in. It's the closest thing to barefoot we have for a performance shoe. It's phenomenal. And, and because I brought it to life, uh, I mean, I'm looking at the pattern literally on the table in front of me because I'm making, I'm tweaking the pattern for something fun to do. Um, so that's really my baby. But there are a half a dozen other shoes that I wear on a regular basis. And every time I put on a different one, it's like, I forgot how much I like this one. So, um, I, so I'm going to go speed force is my favorite child, but then all the rest of them, they're, they're equally my faves. So speed force is my favorite one. Um, mm -hmm. but I had the same, I've, 
I've experienced the same thing. Like, so I'll go through seasons where like, say I wear the speed force every day for three months. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, I'll put on, you know, another pair, like uh, the uh, 360 and I'm like, oh my gosh, where have you been all my life? And I'll wear it every day for three months. <laughs> and so every, as soon as I put on another pair though, I'm like, oh, why haven't I been wearing this pair? You know? So well, it's kind of really neat. ask my wife because at any given time in our house, I'll have two or three pairs of shoes, but she has them all and multiple colors so uh how she decides is a mystery to me last question uh, well no this one's super easy do you like peanut butter i know about chocolate uh peanut butter what kind creamy or crunchy well, uh, uh well crunchy if i'm you know have a choice but what i've been doing lately is getting that powdered peanut butter that's lower fat yeah so i really like that because it allows me to have more jelly or in this case chocolate because of the fewer calories Right on. Um, that's awesome. I am, by the way, bar and cocoa. It's on my list. I wrote it down. You know, it's so funny. You asked me the peanut butter thing and the chocolate thing too. When we're interviewing people to work here, we ask them. So uh, most important question, dark chocolate or milk chocolate? And if they say milk chocolate, we are, we have a hard time hiring them. It's I mean, like, thanks for coming in. <laughs> well, yeah, it really says something about their decision-making skills that has probably never been addressed. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, this is this has been so much fun thank you thank you for sharing your time with us oh my gosh don't be silly it was a pleasure thanks for listening everyone now get outside and play